I don't know about you, Mr. Crypto, but I feel like I need to change my clothes after becoming a sweaty hot mess from reading these last two chapters. Absalom, Absalom, chapters three and four, you have now finally experienced the anxiety and the stress. I need a shower. (laughs) I believe that. I believe that. Welcome to the Codex Cantina. I am Una. And I am the sweaty crypto. (laughs) And we are back for chapters three and four, like we said. These are meant to make you feel uncomfortable, and I think a lot of that comes from Mr. Compson as the narrator. If you've been following along with our Before Absalom and also our Chapters 1 and 2 breakdown, we warned you that the narrator was super important. Mr. Compson makes this section super difficult when he's constantly saying, I imagine this, or it probably went something like this. I finally understand what you'd been alluding to of him not being a trustworthy narrator, and this idea of him elaborating and embellishing and that he is he's trying to convey the best to his ability but he also wants i think to almost uplift himself as much as uh you know his dad and sut pen think of it this way was he at the sut pen christmas when they had the argument no was he along with henry and bond when they are going to new orleans no was he with Sutpen at the Holston house when he arrived and started building the Sutpen home? No, and he's not at the wedding either, right? Mr. Compson, that we know of, yeah, in this story, has never met Sutpen. It's like a very stoic, non-emotional version of this mythic character that Rosa was just really fuming over in the first chapter and now we get this guy that's like yeah my dad was really good friends with him and and he came to town and this is what he did and i imagine that you know Sutpin, he he probably had an argument and it went something like this he's unreliable not because we can't trust mr compson so much as we can't trust mr compson's experiences he's like relaying all this information from the town to the reader and it's super uncomfortable and that's the key thing is yes this is very complex and we've said that so many times but you can enjoy this and having that greater degree of why he is you know telling quentin the story this way it it allows you to click and then you're going to enjoy the story that much more and i think be able to dive deeper into it all right so now we're getting into the question if a man as strong as Sutpen fails as hard as he did here, how will the South ever survive? Yeah. So in terms of scope, we're going to go... I actually brought quotes back because I got some that I need to go through real quick. We're going to well, go the quote, through, right? I've got your quote if you want to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got chapters three and four broken down from a chronological order perspective, so it can be confusing when everything's told in zipping all over the place. I did my best to break it down in order chronologically of how it would happen. Hopefully that'll help. And if not, you can skip ahead to the analysis section where we're going to really once again break down the Sutpen allegory. We're going to talk about the color of morality along with that, as well as fatalism and some of the religious landscape of the South and Greek symbolism. Hopefully we have enough time. Let's try and get through this and do the subject justice. But it's, it, there's so much to talk about, people. So let's let's try to get into this. All right, so quotes... We, the thousand, the white men, made them, created and produced them. We even made laws which declare that one-eighth of a specified kind of blood shall outweigh seven-eighths of another kind. And that's referring to that if you had any black heritage in your bloodstream, you were considered 
inferior to a someone that was 100% white in terms of their blood. Yeah, well, that goes back to the three-fifths law of counting people and counting people as portions of people because they want them to count for tax purposes and one reason, but they, 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 they don't want to count them as actual people. There's so much to talk about today. I can't even begin to explain. Uh, Crypto, do you want to do your quote? They are there, yet something is missing. They are like a chemical formula, exhumed along with the letters from that forgotten chest. Carefully, the paper old and faded and falling to pieces. The writing faded, almost indecipherable, yet meaningful, familiar in shape and sense. The name and presence of volatile and sentient forces. You bring them together in proportions called for, but nothing happens. You reread. This quote (laughs) is... Faulkner. This is the embodiment of who he is in this quote. I don't care what book, what short story, anything you've ever read before. This quote is him. I will give you full credit for that one. (laughs) All right, let's jump into plot where we're going to rearrange the most important things that happened in these chapters in order because I think that helps organize things. Please skip ahead to the next section if you feel really comfortable with what happened in these chapters. All right, so chapter three, Quentin is talking with his pops, Mr. Compson. In 1833, when Sutpen first came to town, we learned that Clytemestra was one of the black slaves who was also Sutpen's daughter. And Sutpen has another unknown boy out there. In 1845, Rosa's mom died in childbirth with her. People blamed Rosa for this. She was partly raised by her spinster aunt and a father who only cared about the public's view of his morality. In 1855, when Rosa was 10, her aunt eloped and fled to Illinois with a man who was arrested for stealing horses from the Confederacy, leaving Rosa to be raised by Mr. Coldfield. Rosa was occasionally brought to the Sutpen home for dinner. And in 1859, Henry brings Charles Bond home from the University of Mississippi. At some point in 1860, when Rosa was 15, she was sewing a wedding dress for Judith with goods stolen from her father's store. Christmas time, 1860, Sutpin forbids the marriage of Bond and Judith, and Henry leaves his family. In 1861, the Civil War breaks out, and the boys, along with Sutpin, left to go serve in the war. The Civil War. The morally-centered Coldfield stopped selling goods to war supporters, and eventually his store was ransacked. Mr. Coldfield then went into hiding in his attic. Rosa secretly fed her father for years. And in 1863, Ellen Coldfield dies in a darkened room where she had been for two years. In 1864, one day, Mr. Coldfield's hand did not come out to accept the food from Rosa, and he was found dead. Once again, people blamed Rosa for the death of her parent. 1865, Charles Bond is killed with no context. (laughs) Wash Joan arrives looking malaria-ridden and calls for Rosa. Rosa moved in with the Sutpens. And in 1866, Sutpen returns from the war to find Rosa living at his house. (laughs) And then in 1909, Mr. Compson explains this story of Rosa's childhood to Quentin. Chapter 4. At Ole Miss, sometime between 1859, Henry became enamored with a Charles Bond, an older student studying law. He soon switches to law himself. Christmas break, 1859. Henry returns home with Charles Bond. Charles and Judith meet for the first time. And at some point, Henry seduces Judith, potentially upon Charles's behalf, as Mr. Compson doesn't think they spent much time together. Henry is speculated to have read all the letters 
passed from Bonn to Judith. And in 1816, Sutpen left for New Orleans. Two weeks later, Charles and Henry return home. Shortly thereafter, Bonn also for New Orleans. Christmas Eve, 1860, Mr. Compson speculates that Sutpen told Henry about Charles' alternate family in New Orleans and how they are part black. Henry repudiated his Sutpen heritage due to his love for Bond. That night, Ellen resigned herself to her room for the next two years. Seems reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) Christmas Day, Mr. Compson speculates Henry and Charles Bond headed to New Orleans, where Henry expected to see Charles' first family and the truth for himself. In New Orleans, Henry learns Charles' wife is a prostitute, but not to be called a whore. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny, right? (laughs) Yeah. Mr. Compson continues his speculation train, and he thinks that Charles told Henry his wife was part black, so therefore the marriage doesn't count. Henry continues to plead that Bond should divorce his one-eighth black wife. Henry began to forbid Bond from writing to his sister. In 1861, Henry and Bond joined the Confederacy, the Civil War. Henry becomes a lieutenant. Post-1861, at some point before 1865, Judith and Clyde gathered food. Wash Jones hunted from his rotten hut. Four years later, probably around 1865, Bond wrote a letter to Judith where he informed her he intended to marry her. Judith and Clyde began gathering scraps to make a wedding dress. Henry warns Charles Bond, Don't you pass that gate of the Sutpen Hundred. Well, he does. And Henry shoots him. (laughs) Judith gives the letter to General Compson's wife. At some point, General Compson's wife gives the letter to Mr. Compson. And in 1909, Mr. Compson sits down with Quentin and gives him this letter. All right, so let's jump into our discussions here. We need to go a little bit quick because this is such a rich text. I, I really think that that plot was worth and needed to go into in chronological detail. I hope it's useful. Let's talk about our discussion items. So I want to get into fatalism and the Southern religious ecosphere. But we have to start, I think, with the generation before, which is Sutpen and the allegory for the South. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. So in these chapters, the war comes along, which was very definitional for the South. Changed it forever. Remolded the entire landscape of social life, economics, the, the government, everything. So let's look at it this way. Sutpen came along in the story. He's going to be the self-made man. I'm going to make something of my life. He He builds a plantation, he farms, he becomes one of the biggest plantations in the area, starts to create a familial dynasty by marrying a well-respected woman in town. He's creating a lot for himself, right? But at what expense? He takes seed money from General Compson, he takes the daughter from Mr. Coldfield, both, I'm going to say begrudgingly, like they kind of went along with him taking and building things. And you'll see from the reaction from the wedding, the town isn't exactly in love with the way that Sutpen is taking things from them, taking things from the Indians in terms of the land. He's becoming a self-made man at the expense of the outrage of the town. Fair statement? Yeah, definitely. And this is where I think that, I think in the story, the town represents the North. While the North will be guilty of many of the same problems and things that the South will be, they're also a little bit more apprehensive and reluctant into the slavery and, you know, the horrible treatment of the Native Americans and, and so on and so forth. So I, I think the town represents the, the Northern ideals here in this story. I might, well, let's talk about that some more. So, so Mr. Coldfield, he bought slaves too. What did he do with them? He freed them. So he's going along with slavery, but he's like, no, it's cool because I'm freeing them. I'm doing the right thing in the end, but he's still going along and using them to 
earn back the cost that he spent into them. He represents a very passive resistance to slavery. He's not on the far end of pure evil, but he's not pure good either in this respect, too. Definitely. And that's the way the North was as well, as most people... They were passive. They they didn't, you know, agree or disagree with it. They were like, well, it's a thing. It's always been a thing, but what do I care? And it really doesn't become a thing until the Civil War, until Lincoln pushes it in the faces of everybody as a thing. Let me keep adding to that. His daughter, Rosa, the daughter of a preacher, is she morally perfect? No. Because she stole goods from her father's shop to make the dress. She's she's taking stuff from others for herself. Yeah, she, she Charles has. Charles Bond, is he perfect? No. <laughs> no. Right. So well, whether you from a religious standpoint, no. Right, but even um I think moralistically bad, universally stealing from others is moralistically bad, right? He's True. stealing he's stealing from the north like the ink, for example, even to write the letter to to kind of serve his own needs. He he's a man that's being set up to reposition things for his own needs as well. Same same thing with Rosa, right? I would agree with that, yeah. Now the soldiers fighting they ransack Mr. Coldfield's store. They, they just like the other two, are taking something that's not theirs and repurposing, stealing it for their own need. Yep. Now, my point that I was going to make, I don't know if I was going to, maybe I ought to have pointed out that it argues for the South, but maybe I was a little bit different where I agree that this is a passive resistance, which if you associate passive resistance with the North, I can see, I think we're talking the same thing. But I was going to argue that they're not actively trying to stop slavery. They're passively going along with it, as opposed to Sutpen, who, of course, is pro-slavery. He is subverting people to achieve and breed them for his desires to build his dynasty, to build his self-made man. Yeah, that's fair to say. He is the quintessential Southern man, building something from nothing, creating a plantation, using slavery, and gaining at the cost of others. Yes. So I think the other people in this story, the, this is just what we do, we go along with it, but we don't like it. This shows how slavery was created by men by, like Sutpen, and then it was perpetuated by men like Coldfield, Rosa, these soldiers that we don't really like it, but we go along with it. And that's why slavery existed throughout the whole the whole South and much of the North even. Yeah, agreed. It's it's the belief that my actions couldn't make a difference, so I go with it. That That is why slavery was such an evil in the United States of America. And I think Rosa might be, as we've talked about before, because she tells the truth and nobody believes her. The She's the Cassandra of the story. She, yeah, she's the Cassandra of the story, but I think she might be the only, besides maybe Quentin, Rosa's innocent, like, she is making the best out of a bad situation the whole time, uh, and I think she represents the uh, the innocence of everybody. Again, I haven't finished the story yet, so I don't know. The innocence could be Quentin or, or Rosa, I don't know. We have the next chapter, chapter five, is going to be Rosa, and then the rest okay. of the book is going to be Quentin and his roommate. Okay. Rosa Rosa tells the truth to what she knows. She doesn't know everything. So she could also represent um, northern abolitionist beliefs as well. Because she does seem to say everything is vile, vile, vile. 
And that's how a northern abolitionist, because there were people that were, you know, going against slavery, speaking out against slavery in the north, uh, trying to get change made. But it, it and they saw it as an, an evil, not a necessary evil. They just saw it as an evil and it should be done away with. And so maybe she represents that again, not done with the book, but I'm just kind of speculating on how we could view Rosa as our allegory with the, the south and the north here and all the players in the town. Yeah, I, to me, it's almost old south and new south more so than south versus north but let's 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 explore that as we go through this for sure for sure i think we both agree slavery corrupts all levels of life and values in the south and devalues devalues that that's a key yeah it devalues the values yeah well it and and one thing that a lot of people i think are hard you know, especially uh, as Southerners, is slavery changed Southerners as much as it changed and affected the slaves themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree with that. And we talked a lot about that during our Go Down Moses with the miscegenation and the mixing of families and the shadow family creations. Horrible. Now, here's yeah. here's where I think this story, more so than Go Down Moses, shines is I love this part. Are you ready for this? Ready. So in terms of the Southern ecosystem of religions, you got a lot of Baptists. You got a lot of Methodists. You got some Presbyterians, but it's a heavily Christian South, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, religion is a huge influence. Christianity and Protestantism is uh, the end-all be-all for, for Southern at this time because American football hasn't been invented yet. now there's football and jesus back then there was just jesus (laughs) and guns (laughs) we love our guns here's what i'm really excited about to talk about with you today is because when you and i've talked naturally i think you have a catholic background and i've heard that from you in terms of how you view salvation where you've talked about in the rain video by mom you said well he would just ask for forgiveness that's a very catholic way to view their salvation we need to talk about a very specific sect. So Faulkner's great-grandfather was Calvinist. Um, when he was 19, he was asked to help uh, kind of run a scout troop at a Presbyterian church. One of his one of his good friends and pastors asked him to do that. His last name is Christian, oddly enough. <laughs> but, you know, he probably went to a Baptist church, which I think his mammy was. So he had exposure to a lot of different religions. And I wouldn't say Faulkner is an expert at religion. When you, when you read his text, he's familiar. I think he seems really familiar with like Matthew and Old Testament. I'm not so sure about some of the other parts. But uh, he kind of draws a little bit from all the different areas, much from all the different religions, much like the whole ecosystem of the South. Okay, But in terms of that scout troop and in terms of getting married, uh, his wife, if you didn't know, left her husband to be with Faulkner. With I think it was two with two kids, and she was coming from the Episcopal Church, which wouldn't marry her for this reason. So guess who came to his rescue? Different church, another branch. The Presbyterian Church. Okay, so different denomination. Yeah. So here's what's really interesting. Do you know how Presbyterians, specifically Calvinism, and I guess I should say some branches of Presbyterians view salvation? I guess it depends on. some will ask for forgiveness, uh, some buy into for forgiveness, some through penance. Uh, there's different ways of earning salvation depending on the branch. Maybe for that specific branch, 
But by and whole, most Presbyterians and all Calvinists, by by definition, believe in what's called predestination, which is why I say it's really interesting because I think you come from a heavy Catholic background, which a lot of what you've described is very Catholic. Yeah, you're you're they're either when you're born, you're going, or you're not going. Predestination, the idea that God's already selected who's going to heaven and who is not going to heaven. No matter what you do, you can't change that. You can't trick God. You can't try and act nice and, okay, you've earned your way into heaven. Let's do this. He's already selected. He knows how your life, your whole life is going to go. It's kind of like determinal, determ, determinism from like a philosophy standpoint of like all of these actions lead to future actions. So your life's kind of already determined. Another way to view it is fatalism of you're going to end up at this light, at this end spot. Doesn't matter what choices you make you're going to end up here of either you're getting to heaven or not is kind of the idea of predestination and fatalism. So we're all going to die. <laughs> well, you're definitely no all going to die, right? No matter <laughs> how healthy you eat or work out, everybody's going to die. Awesome. Awesome. Way good uplifting video, Una. <laughs> well, what's important about this is that you'll notice a lot of these characters suffer from a form of fatalism. And just, and just Faulkner's writing in general uh, they, they've done studies, and there's been more Presbyterian religion representation in the South in Faulkner's writing than than the actual South at the time, showing maybe a, a, a preference there. So I just had a question. So if these people's lives are predetermined, do you think maybe that's why they're telling their altered versions of their stories is because they don't like being locked into what their their lives are supposed to be you know that's that's a deep question and probably a good question for someone other than me because i don't believe in that so i will probably have a tainted version (laughs) of it maybe that's why why he's writing them that way perhaps tell the story of this kindly old lady like we talked about from from the first section who let you sit inside to talk about this like putting a favorable view on what is an inevitable situation, arguably a good question to ask there. And then diarrhea of the mouth happens. <laughs> In terms of, of like his writing, we have uh, Go Down Moses. We had the quote, the boy himself had inherited it as Noah's grandchildren had inherited the flood, although they had not been there to see the deluge. You have Light in August, which is extremely Calvinistic. Um, if we, when we get to that story, I, I want to get to that story eventually, probably is, next year. We'll talk about that. Is that, that a short somewhere. story? Nope, nope, no, it's a, it's a full novel. Full novel. This is his most complex, I think, difficult novel. That one's pretty straightforward. Okay. And then, and then The Sound and the Fury, which have the Compsons as well. Mr. Compson there is very, look, kids, there's nothing I can do to avoid this. Life sucks. I bought The Sound and the Fury up on my shelf, up on my shelf, right next to Mom. So I've got a couple of quotes here, and I know we're running short on time, but you've got Bond's attraction to Henry. It was because Bond not only loved Judith, after his fashion, but he loved Henry too, and I believe in a deeper sense than merely after his fashion. Perhaps in his fatalism, he loved Henry, the better of the two, seeing perhaps in the sight merely the shadow, the woman vessels with which to consummate the love whose actual object as the youth. So Charles being described as being very fatalistic here. And the most important one, I think, I just want to call out real quick, because I know we're running short on time, but We've got um, when they're talking about the prostitutes, the white the white women in New Orleans, and they're talking about the thousand that make the decisions. God right. may mark every sparrow, but we do not pretend to be God. You see, perhaps we do not even want to be God, since no man would want to be one of these sparrows. 
And I'll put up on the screen the the quote from Matthew that this is referring to from the Bible with the idea that God has chosen man to rule over sparrows. I don't think this was meant to be small allegory of man ruling over slaves, like like sparrows, where, where, where white men are the chosen one. I think you could take it that way. I'm not sure I did. But I think this is looking at the idea of God has chosen for things to be a certain way, and there's nothing you can do to change it. In the same way that Rosa proposed in the opening chapter, God made the South lose the war because of men like Sutpin, the men that had no pity. Um, you have this fatalistic view where there's nothing we can do to change this, so we just go along with it to kind of wrap up a lot of that allegory of we're stuck in this slavery situation. There's nothing we can do to change with it. We just go along with it, which I think is, we're on we're page 100 of like 300, depending on what version you are. And this book is just riddled with so much. It's insane. Yeah, there's definitely a lot here to digest and unfold. In terms of Greek references, I'll go through this real quick. I was recommended to check out the Oresteia. I don't know how to pronounce that. I've never checked it out. Still haven't checked it out. Until I looked it up and I realized that the first book is Agamemnon, which of course I know. And the idea is that Clytemenstra kind of plotted Agamemnon's death upon his return. And I think you can kind of see that a little bit here with Clytemenstra being the daughter of Sutpen and Sutpen's ultimate death after coming back from war the same way that Agamemnon was off after coming back from war, basically. Number two, you've got Rosa comparing to looking at Sutpen as wearing the Greek mask. Uh, I want to call it real quick that the Greek tragedy masks were something that were interchangeable between actors. The idea is that it caused sudden terror in the audience when they saw these terrifying masks that they would wear. That's Sutpen in a nutshell, and I love the way that they use that in terms of this Greek tragedy comparison. Uh, the mysticism, they talked about the wild slaves being able to conjure up uh, cotton faster and better than the way other people could work in the fields. Uh, the incest love, that's a, a subject all in of itself with Henry and Bond, right? With the way that they have some incestuous feelings towards each other and express it through Judith. Um, I think you also have the word metamorphos used, I think, three times in this section where they're talking about Charles Bond having feelings towards uh, Henry. And I think this is comparable to uh, Narcissus from Ovid's Metamorphosis where he was in love with himself so much, the only way that he could express that love of himself was, was you know, kind of like what's happening here with Charles and Henry. We've got uh, Sutpen as Agamemnon, as we talked about in terms of sacrificing his firstborn child and wife. Super obvious there, if you ask me. And then the yeah. last one, uh, I guess I can ask you about too, is the butterfly, where Ellen was described as a butterfly. I counted eight times. There might be more or less than that. And she crossed the river Styx on her death did you take something away from Ellen being a being compared to a butterfly so often? Here? Yeah, so I think this is uh, another person that is representing purity, and she's representing uh, the butterfly represents her soul. Uh, in Christianity, a butterfly usually represents a soul, um, and in Chinese religions, it usually represents um, purity. Uh, innocence uh, like that. So I, I think that's what that he's going for here is why he, he's using the butterfly. And it's ephemeral. A soul is ephemerally in the temple of a human body with the idea that it eventually go up to to heaven for eternal life, right? Yeah, the, the idea be, that... You know, the same it, way a caterpillar transforms, right? Yeah, so your body transforms into something corporeal and it leaves the body upon death going to heaven or hell. 
I give you full credit for using the word corporeal. All right, uh, <laughs> predictions. Okay, so I got to ask you, Southern values, super important to the South, way more important to the South than the North, right? And I yeah. wanted to talk about these narrators to hear your thoughts since you've never read this story before. And I think that okay. can relate to other people who haven't read it. I, I know where it's going. Sutpin seems to be protecting his progenies, right? You can't marry my daughter. And the way that he raises these kids, he's he's breeding them. I think they described it earlier in, in one of the earlier previous reads. Um, what do you think happened in that chat between Sutpin and and Henry? Do you believe Mr. Compson's story, or what are your thoughts? No, I I think I think we have some Jerry Springer stuff going on here. Um, as you alluded to with Charles and Henry, I think that uh, he's trying to build a family dynasty, dynasty, whatever. Um, and he has his daughter, but in the South, uh, men are looked more favorably upon. Uh, very, very patriarchal society in the South. And as a result, his son uh, is is possibly gay, you know. And, and if he's coming out okay. and saying that I love, I love Charles. Mm, okay, okay. He's like, wait, wait, what, what about my grandkids? You need to have kids first before your sister. Oh, um, okay. And so I think, I think, I think we got some, uh, I think we got some inner workings and in drama here um, because I, I think that Charles and Henry are, are gay. So. so you, you were, you think that he's protecting the alimony of going to the female side, kind of like what happened in Go Down Moses, as opposed to the male side. Yeah, and that that totally makes sense from a southern cultural point of view, and. Uh, kind of how I feel that Charles and and Henry are written in the story. I, I picked up on that really, or okay, I texted now, you, and I picked up on that. Okay, now here's here's a question. Okay, here's a question. Okay. Why is he so, besides the female side, it's still his family, right? And if you're worried about alimony going to Charles Bond, and because is, is the concern that he has another family as well, because that part, that family's part black, so they wouldn't get any of that alimony. It would be Judith's. What are your thoughts yeah, but, on that? True, but this family seems to be a semi-unique in the fact that, well, not not semi-unique. There there were plenty of uh, plantation owners that were, I want to say, decent as you can be to somebody that you own. <laughs> right, right. They're, they're not pure evil, but they ain't pure good either, right? Yeah, well, I wouldn't even say good. <laughs> when you own somebody, you can't even put good in that, the right, sentence. They're, they're not on either end. They're kind of in the yeah. we're shitty sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I guess uh, he he's more accepting of having, you know, black people in the family. And while they may not get... Uh, you know, land or money or rights or anything like that, that's not something that you can use as an argument to say, oh, we're shunning because of the black heritage. You can't because of his, you know, part black daughter. Um, and then the unknown son that we don't know about really yet, uh, that's obviously going to come into play as well, I think. So, okay. I, I need I, more I, information. I need more I information. Know. I know. So much has happened in terms of the allegory of the South, in terms of the destruction of it from the war, from people using things, from from stealing from shops, from their fathers, ransacking stores, 
the idea of this is what we do, so it's what we've always done. I can't change it. The fatalism, the Greek mythology, that's just what we've covered. There's still so many more angles out there, and we're a hundred pages into this book. Think about that. This is incredible <laughs> what you guys are getting to experience here. Okay, so next week, we just finished chapters three and four. We're going through chapters five and six. Buckle up because we're going back to Rosa, and for once, we get Quentin's view. We got Quentin listen to his pops, but what side of the story is Quentin going to bring to this puzzle? And he's read the letters, right? So I think a lot of his information has come from those letters. Well, I'll tell you... Don't tell me, don't tell me, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'm excited. Okay, okay. Excited. no spoilers, no spoilers. <laughs> but, but there's no new events, in a sense, but you're going to get a different angle of what's been presented to you and be like, oh! Like, like I'm telling you, this is... This story. This is where really, like, all of this has been almost like prologue, and now we're hitting the real chunky, juicy. Like, it's the center, the center of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The best bite. (laughs) It might make you feel sweaty. It might make you feel uncomfortable. But name (laughs) books that can just pull these emotions out of the story. I tell you. Stay tuned for next week, guys. Please subscribe if you have enjoyed our conversation. If you are in on this excitement, if you are in on the confusion, please consider joining us on this journey in understanding and dissecting Absalom, Absalom, chapter by chapter. We are going through chapters five and six for the next week. We'll check you guys out then. Una out. You want your your certificate, right? Got to get that Faulkner certificate. Crypto out. That's right.